Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. The attitude of the heart and the heart in the Christian has been changed. So we give thanks for all things the Bible says. You have your Bibles with you? I trust you do. Turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 1. <laughs> As we travel through this book, uh, it's really, um, I don't know about you, but it's just really, it's, uh, it's been very helpful to me um, to keep my eyes fixed on Christ. Let me ask you this question, the simple question. What is a preacher's priority? What is the, the priority of a preacher in preaching? Let me ask you this question another way. What is a, a Bible teacher's priority in teaching the Bible? What is the priority of a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor? What is the priority of a Christian parent in teaching their children and raising their children up? What is it? Sorry? To be an example? I think if you could narrow it down to one word, what would that one word be? Christ. That is what it is. The priority of a preacher in preaching the Word of God is to make much of Christ. Do you understand that? The priority of a Bible teacher in teaching the Bible is to make much of Christ. The priority of a, of a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor is to make much of Christ. The priority of a parent who claims to be a Christian and raising their children and teaching their children is to make much of Christ. Do you get that? That's the priority, folks. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's the one thing we are called to do is to make much of Jesus Christ because without Christ, the word Christian is nothing. Not be a Christian without Christ. You take Christ out of the picture and all is lost. Amen. So my priority for you this morning is to make much of Jesus Christ as it is every other morning. To do anything else is not to be faithful to Christ and his word. Somebody told me last week, you know, that the lights sort of went on for them. When I said the Bible is all about him. His name is in there more times than anybody else's name. Did you know that? He is referred to in the Bible more times than anyone else. More times than Abraham. More times than, than David. More times than anybody else. Is that a clue or what? We laugh because some people don't believe that. We laugh because some people don't get it. His name is in here more times than anyone else's. Is a clue for us. This book is all about him and not about us. The characters in, in this book are there as foils. You know what a foil is? A foil is somebody who's sort of in the story, but they actually... They're not the main character of the story. They are there to make much of the main character in the story. And the main character in the Bible is Jesus or God, however you want to call him, the Lord. And everyone else is just a foil there to help us realize that, hang on, he's the main character. So when it comes to preaching the Bible, when it comes to teaching the Bible, when it comes to Sunday school and teaching our children in Sunday school or if we were to have a youth group and we were teaching them, 
or whether it's raising our children, is to make much of Jesus Christ. Why? Without him, we can do nothing. In fact, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, it's he who holds all things together. <laughs> that, that's a clue for us too. He holds all things together. That if I were to have an egg in my hand here, I would be holding that egg together, right? The moment I let it go, guess what? Falls to the ground and it goes splat. You get that? Imagine if Jesus were to let go of everything. If he were to let go of everything and remove his hand from anything, that thing would not exist anymore. Get that? That thing would not exist anymore. It's by the grace of God that we exist today and by the hand of God that we are held together, that we aren't just floating particles. The Bible says it's Christ who does that. He holds it all together. Isn't that Amazing. Isn't that what it says in your Bible? Colossians 1.17 And he holds all things together. Question is, do you believe that? Because that has huge implications on what we think about him. We don't believe he holds all things together. I'm afraid we worship a very weak and powerless God. A God that really just can't do anything without us. And we need to remember that he created us. And by that very virtue, we need him more than he needs us. So yes, it's to preach Christ, and there are many facets to Christ, but the priority of the preacher, the Bible teacher, is to make much of Christ. Why? Because it is necessary, and it's of the utmost importance for us. Because without him, we are absolutely nothing. And there's one reason why Christ is to be preached and taught. That is why we strive to make much of him. What does that mean? Well, it means that we proclaim Christ and we proclaim a Christ-centered gospel. And we don't proclaim a man-centered gospel because there are huge differences. Because a Christ-centered gospel focuses where? On Christ. Whereas the man-centered gospel focuses on men. Can men save you? But unfortunately, there's, it's crazy that the man-centered gospel is the most popular gospel in the evangelical world. That, that men can save themselves. That God is just a puppet on a string. The puppet is powerless. Only somebody's pulling those strings. So we proclaim a Christ-centered gospel, not a man-centered gospel. It means that when we consider all the needs that we have, whether it be salvation or justification, whether it be sanctification or glorification, whether it be the everyday workings in one's life, such as raising our children or, or working in the workplace or ministry in the church or ministry in the community, whether it be depression, whether it be disability, no matter what it is, 
No matter what it is, we look to Christ and we preach and teach that Christ is the answer for all our needs. Because He holds everything together. So as we come to our text this morning, we are given that treatment by the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Colossae by exhortation that they were to trust Christ. That Christ is absolutely enough. And that you don't need to add to Christ what can never sustain you or fulfill you but that Christ is enough for you. So the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3 to 5, chapter 1, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So the Apostle Paul makes it known to the Colossians that he and Timothy were praying for them. Right? We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, verse 3. And so they were praying for them. But why were they praying? First of all, verse 4, because they heard of their faith, in Christ and the love which they had for all the saints. You pray for all the saints of this church. You pray that we be strengthened in our faith in Christ, that Christ is enough for us That's how Paul was praying. You might think, well, that's no big deal, right? Yes, yeah, so they had faith in Christ and they loved the saints. Lots of people have faith in Christ and lots of people love the saints in Christ, right? Rock up to your prayer meeting. See how many people turn up. You know who's praying for the saints. And you know who's praying for the, for the saints and their faith in Christ. Yes, but know this. Church prayer meetings are the, less, the least attended meetings in the church. In my experience in the churches I've been involved with, that not many people like to come out and pray. They might not think it's a big deal. We don't have to pray for the saints. We don't have to pray for their faith in Christ. Let me say that this is no ordinary situation. In fact, we might be able to see some correlation with our own context as we consider the context here in the book of Colossians. See, to be a, a Christian in the Colossians context was no easy feat. They had some very big things going against them, some very big challenges. They were in a political and religious climate which was not warm toward Christians. And we might say that we live in a political and religious climate that currently isn't warm toward those who love Christ and who love his word. We might consider the Israel Palau situation and it's obvious that to be a Christian in Australia who believes the word of God and believes that Christ is the only hope for a sinful, lost humanity is very unpopular. In fact, I would take it that if we were to go down the Bridge Street this morning and put up a sign and say that we love Jesus and we preach the word, and if we would get our Bibles out and start preaching the word, 
I would think that in no time people would start egging us. Should we do that? Who's in? Who would like to lay down their lives for Jesus Christ? Who is willing to lose their life that they would gain it? Or who wants to gain their life so that they will lose it? Isn't that what Jesus said? And isn't his word truth? Do you believe it? And let's do it. Oh, it's truth. And so that's the climate, really, that the Apostle Paul was writing to. The climate the Colossians were under. They would have felt the heat from their Roman rulers. And they would have felt the heat from the religious rulers. The religious people. Oh my gosh, religious people. Their Roman rulers had no sympathy toward anyone who worshipped a ruler other than Caesar. They had no sympathy toward anyone who, who worshipped a God other than their gods. And the religious people of that day shared the same lack of sympathy as the Roman rulers. They too lacked sympathy for anyone who did not follow their system, their beliefs, their religious attitudes. We all know what religion is, don't we? Religion is you do, 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 do. And Christ will do for you too. Only when you do. You see the difference. Religion says, unless you do something, Christ, God cannot do anything for you. You know how that minimizes grace? Because grace says you cannot do nothing. Grace says you can do absolutely nothing and that is the prerequisite for grace. To be absolutely hopeless and helpless. Do you get that? But religion says, no, actually you can do something and God will like you. And God will help you if you are a certain person who does certain things. I don't do this and I don't do that. Therefore, God loves me. If I'm not like that person over there, then God loves me. I just don't have to be like them. I don't have to drink or smoke. And, and as long as I don't drink or smoke, I'm fine. As long as I don't swear like they swear, oh, I might say a bad word every now and again. God loves me. So I do things. I act a certain way. Oh, we just heard from Maddie this morning. We fall short of the glory of God. The minute you think you don't, is <laughs> the minute the Bible says that you are proud and a proud person falls. Because that's what becomes, that's what comes before a fall is pride. And pride is to say, I can do it. God needs me. And I can prove it by behaving like this. If that's the case, you don't need grace. Actually, what you need is God's love. To humble you. To bring you to your knees to help you see that actually you can't do So we don't want to be religious people. So the Apostle Paul makes it known to them, the Colossians, that he was praying. Because they obviously needed prayer. Which might suggest that there was some kind of need and some lack of something on the Colossians' behalf. And you need to know that the Apostle Paul hadn't actually met with these people. But he's praying for them. He personally didn't know them. Actually, this wasn't the church that he had planted. But he had concern for them, and so he prays for them. Remember, Epaphras came to him in Rome, 
and shared some things about this church. Epaphras came as the, the pastor of the church and telling Paul just how the church was going, what was happening in there. And yes, they had love for the saints, but what did that love look like? And yes, they had faith in Christ, but what did that faith look like? And so Epaphras shares all this with Paul, and so Paul writes to them to exhort them and to encourage them to get their eyes on Christ and trust that he is enough. So the Apostle Paul prays for them because they had an obvious need for prayer which might suggest that there was a lack of something here. But what was the specifics of his prayer? Well, verse 9 to 12 gives us the details of what he prayed. Verse 9, for this reason also since the day we heard of it. Heard of what? <laughs> well, you go back, you've got to go back to verse 3 to find out what it is. And it is referring to the gospel specifically and to their faith in Christ. We heard of that, that you came to faith in Christ through the gospel. You see, the gospel a person cannot come to faith in Christ without the hearing of the gospel and then the effectual response to the gospel. Many are called. How are they called? Through the preaching of the gospel. But few are chosen. So only a few are effectively receiving the gospel as the Holy Spirit empowers it to them and opens their hearts and their minds to it. That's how a person comes to faith. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit, in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what the Apostle Paul prayed about was that the Colossian believers would be filled Filled with what? Filled with drink? Filled with food? What does it say? Filled with... No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> what are you reading? Am I reading the wrong Bible? Filled with the... The knowledge of His will, of God's will. Doesn't it? To be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is what Paul was praying for these people. And the knowledge, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will was necessary for the Colossians as much as it is for you and me. You understand that. Well, how will you know what to do? How will you know uh, what the will of God is if you have not been filled? Because I've been filled today. <laughs> if you haven't been filled by the, the knowledge of his will, how will you know his will? Let's break it down, eh? What does it mean? Well, the term filled is the Greek word pleru. And this word has a number of nuances. It can mean to fill, such as the, uh, the wind filling uh, the sail of a boat. And Ian sails here, he knows what that's like. If there's no wind, the boat really doesn't go anywhere, does it? That's, that's what happens. And so the word pleru can mean that as the wind blows and fills the sail. The, the, the boat moves along. 
It can also mean to, to permeate, such as marinade permeates a piece of meat. You know, you, you get a piece of meat, you put it in a dish and you, you pour the marinade over it and you put it in the fridge, cover it and leave it for a few hours or overnight and next thing you know, the, the meat is just permeated with that flavour. Now, it can mean to dominate or to have total control such as one's emotion can dominate or control a person. And it can mean to fulfill, such as uh, an employee fulfilling the obligations of their work contract. The way it's being employed here involves all the nuances, and what we need to know is that this particular verb is passive. See, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is not something we can actively achieve. So it's not an active verb where you do it, where you go and find the, the source of God's will and then you can achieve it by doing something. That, that would be an active verb. But this is a passive verb. It's like it's been done to you. Just like the, the, the wind you know, filling the sail of a boat. It would be silly for it to be active, wouldn't it? Because active would mean that the sail fills itself with the wind. And it would be silly to think that a piece of steak lying in a dish could actually permeate itself with marinade. Or that a, a sad or angry person can just automatically become happy. Honestly, they, they can't. Just as an employee cannot fulfill their obligation to their employer without first having and understanding the nature of their contract. And so it's passive in that it's done to you. Something happens to you. And so... The Apostle Paul prays, in fact, in verse 9, it tells us that he didn't just pray. It actually says there that he asked. That he asked God that the Colossians would be filled. He asked God to give them something they didn't have and only God could give. That's what asking means, doesn't it? When you ask, you know, somebody for, for help, you are asking them to give you something that you don't have. When a child asks their, their mother for a piece of bread, they are asking their mother for something they don't have. So Paul, he prays, but he asks God that, he, that God would fill the Colossians. Some might say that this kind of knowledge can be obtained by doing something or by being someone, or by knowing certain people. They might say that if a person were to be a Christian for a number of years, then they would obtain the knowledge of God's will. But purely by being a Christian for X amount of years is how one obtains the knowledge of God's will. And we've seen this, haven't we? We've heard people say this. When a person uses the well, I've been a Christian for 50 years. What about you? I've been a Christian for 10, maybe 20. Oh, that'll <laughs> Ridiculous, isn't it? Therefore, I'm going to tell you what it means to be a Christian because I've been one longer. As if the way to maturity in Christ is obtained by experience, by a length of time. You know, Jesus had that problem, didn't he, with the Pharisees? They couldn't get over the fact that he was a young man, but he spoke as one with a authority. He spoke as one with authority, and they just couldn't get over that because he was a young man. Here he is, you know, at the age of 12, preaching in the temple. You know, he's just blown away. 
and most and advocating for young children to get up here and preach. <laughs> I think Jesus was a bit special. <laughs> and there are many who have claimed to be in Christianity for a long length of time but have never matured. They've never matured and it's seen in their manner of walk and their manner of thought. The manner of walk and the manner of thought. Well, you know them. You know them by how they live and you know them by how they talk. You know they don't talk about Christ as though he is personal. Or they talk about him as though he is far off doom, way over in the galaxy somewhere leaving the world up to me to control. They walk as if Christ is just a means to a better lifestyle or a means to another club where I'm accepted and where I can climb the rung, the ladder, And they see Christ as someone who comes to serve them. To serve them and give them their needs and their wants. But now he is Lord. Is he not? He is Lord. He is sovereign. Which means we are actually the servants. be ridiculous for any of us to think that we could go to England and tell the Queen what to do. But many think they can do that with Jesus. Many think that they can view God like that because he's a loving God. What that means is that he, he does what I tell him to do. People like that just don't like it when somebody comes along and they don't do as they want them to do. is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is Lord. As ridiculous as it is for us to think that we could go to Queen Elizabeth and get her to serve us, it's even more ridiculous to think that Jesus is our servant. Yes, he came to serve us in one way only, by dying on the cross as a man and not as God, because if he had died on the cross as God, we wouldn't be here today. Because God cannot die. Because in God, all life exists. You get that? Get that? Without God, there is no life. If he were to have died on the cross, you and I would not be here today. In fact, there would be nothing here today. There would be no universe, no world. Because it's because God lives that life exudes from him, and without him there is no life. You see why you need him. You see how we make much of him. We say that without him we will not exist. That is to make much of him and not of us. So these types of people hardly mention him. There's no talk about him, and when they do, it's as if he's as close to them as Scott Morrison is to us. Why? Because they don't actually know him. It's like, you knew him! Oh, if you knew him! You couldn't help but talk about him. You know what I mean? You wouldn't be able to help but talk about him if you actually knew him and you know him. That's why you talk about him. Amen? That's why you believe with all your heart that the greatest need that we have is him because you actually know him.
And then there's those who believe that if a person were to be older in their age, then they would obtain the knowledge of God's will. So if a person is past the age of 50, then they have obtained the knowledge of God's will purely by being a certain age, or more specifically, by being older. Now I'm 50, so I'm almost at that point. <laughs> so this is, you know, a note to myself. To not be like that. To not look down on my younger brothers and sisters in the Lord. As if they are meaningless. As if I know more than they know. In fact, I know some younger brothers and sisters who probably have more knowledge in, in the Word than I do. And that's humbling. In fact, one of my lecturers at Bible College was younger than me. And I just loved how he taught the Word. Age has no bearing on this, folks. You don't obtain the knowledge of God's will because you are a certain age. The same as being in the, the Lord for a certain length of time. And in fact, that eliminates Jesus because Jesus was a young man when he entered into ministry. Oh, and these people like to have it over younger people. They, they like to bully younger people into believing they have all the answers. You know, that's a problem, I think. You know, we've got to be careful of staying away from. Is that to try and make... And I've seen this before. I've seen what happens. We say to younger people, you need to be like us. You know? You need to be like us. We'll make you into us. You know what I mean? You've got to like the music we like at church. You've got to, you've got to do worship the way we do it at church. Because I know, I'm older. I've been doing this longer. The church is growing because of it. I've been down that track. I tell you, it's a track you don't want to go down. Because what happens? These are the younger people who we are trying to raise up and to, to, to ensure that the church is around preaching the gospel for another hundred years. We can't treat young people like that. Again, it's a note to myself. That kind of attitude is a really is not a Christ-centered attitude. It's not a Christ-centered gospel because it says that your greatest need, young person, is to be like me. Oh no, your greatest need, young people, is Christ. Do you see the difference? You see the difference, don't you? You see the difference, don't you? The greatest need we have is Christ. Oh, it's different. That, the, other, the other view is a religious attitude. It's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They couldn't comprehend Jesus. They actually didn't like Jesus because Jesus was radically different. Radically different than what he taught and even how he dressed. Oh, I've heard people put the other people down because of their dress. You've got to dress like me. Oh, really? Well, let's be like Jesus and all come to church in the Spirit. Isn't that the way we should be? If we are to be followers of Christ? To dress like Christ? They do it over in the islands. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that our hearts and minds are just fixed on Jesus. We are not looking out there for how you dress. Oh, just dress. That's all we're saying. Get dressed. But our eyes are on Christ because He is it's far more beautiful than you are. He is far more awesome than you are. And when we think that, you know, we have to make young people look like us, you know what? Our God has become 
us. We have become the gods of the church. We are saying people follow us, worship us. No, I'm not saying that, and I'll never say that. That is so unfaithful. That is a person who has not met Christ. I'm saying, follow Christ. A person might think that because they are more senior in age than some, they have a they have obtained the knowledge of God's will because of that. They have not been Christ. There are some who might believe that if a person has a master's degree or in biblical studies or any type of degree, then they have obtained the knowledge of God's will, that the knowledge of God's will is achieved by receiving some kind of award. Or if a person has been under the teaching of certain people, then they have obtain the knowledge of God's will. In other words, the knowledge of God's will has been given to them by a particular person. But one cannot obtain the knowledge of God's will by any of these means or by any other means except that it be given to them by God himself. That's why the Apostle Paul asked for it and not work. See, that's the difference between true Christianity and a Christianity that is really religion masked by the term Christian. See, religion believes it can self-achieve. That if I'm a certain age, being a Christian for a certain length of time, if I have a, a certain degree or doctorate, or if I know certain people, then I can achieve certain things. And yet that is a man-centered gospel and not a Christ-centered gospel because it centers on people and not on Christ. Therefore, the term pleru, to be filled, is a divine passive verb. It's divine. That is, it is acted upon a person and not achieved by the will of a person. It is impossible for a person to obtain the knowledge of the will of God by any means except that God would sovereignly bring it to them and give it to them. If one does not have the knowledge of the will of God, then one has not received it. You have not received it yet. And so what is this knowledge of the will of God? Well, we need to understand, first of all, the term knowledge, and it comes from the Greek word epignosis, uh, which is similar to the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. However, epignosis means more than just knowledge. As you already know, a person can know someone, but not necessarily know them intimately. We can have a knowledge of a person, but we don't necessarily know them. You all know the Prime Minister Scott Morrison as an example, right? But you don't know him intimately, do you? You don't know what kind of foods he likes. You don't know the colour of his pyjamas. You don't know you don't know him, do you? You have no relational knowledge of him. It's only head knowledge. And so that's epignosis. Is to know him intimately. But you would know the colour of his pajamas. And it conveys the idea of the relationship or fellowship. The knowledge that one arrives at when one is in a relationship with another and has spent much time with them in a relational way. 
It refers to a larger, more complete, more thorough knowledge. It is the opposite to what the Apostle Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 when referring to the difference between knowledge, gnosis, and love. He said their knowledge puffs up, gnosis. Head knowledge just puffs you up. But love edifies or builds people up. Christ. It's a difference. Head knowledge is just information. Just giving out information. Do you know a lot of information? That's head knowledge. That's gnosis. You have stuff up there that you just need to get out. Epigenosis is you have stuff here in your heart that you just want to get out. Gnosis is up here. You put epi on it, it gets to here in the heart. And it's in the heart why we can talk about him. If you have not met Jesus yet in the heart, but only in the head, it might be why you never talk about him. You might not have a relationship with him. You might not know him intimately. You might not know what he is really like. Why would you even lay down your life for him? Unless you actually knew what he was like. Unless you actually knew who he was and who he is. Yes, he came down as a man. But in coming down as a man, he didn't lose his deity. He was completely God, completely man at the same time. And don't forget, as God, he created us. He knew exactly what we felt. He knew exactly how we thought. He knew exactly every detail about us before he even came down. Because he created us. But he came down as a man. You know why? Because God cannot die. He had to come as a man. To die as a man. And not to die as God. Amen? That's called wisdom. That is perfect wisdom. And only he could do that. And so, he is unlike us. Epignosis, do you know him? Do you have relational knowledge with him? Is he someone that is with you all the time? Do you think about him all the time? Don't tell me that you can be a Christian or not. How can you be a Christian and not think about him all the time? Don't forget that the Holy Spirit is in us. And to think that we wouldn't think about him all the time is to think that the Holy Spirit has just gone to sleep think that we, we wouldn't want to preach the gospel and go and proclaim the gospel to, to the lost is actually saying that the Holy Spirit is asleep in us. To not pray for the saints and rock up at a prayer meeting is actually to say that the Holy Spirit has gone dormant in us. The lights have gone out there. To not be obedient to the word of God and obey the commands of Christ to say that the Holy Spirit is in us, but He's sleeping, not at work. But the sign up, uh, do not disturb. You know what I'm saying? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit who has not gone to sleep to do what? To obey the commands of Jesus Christ. Why? Because if he left it to us, 
If he left it to us to do it with all our strength and might, we would not. Well, I know there are some times when we feel like the Holy Spirit's gotten us there. But it is bad theology to say that or to even think that. We may feel like that, but trust me, he is not asleep. He is using all things, working all things. Romans 8, 28. Working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his Never sleeps. In fact, I don't think he even knows what sleep is. He is at work all the time. We don't have to. You know what? He has all of us. And we have all of him. We are not missing out on any of him. Who do you think dwells in there? Half of the spirit? Some of the spirit? All of the spirit. There is a theology that believes that only part of the spirit dwells in there. That is a theology that does not know the spirit. What is the will of God? I'm closing this. <clears throat> Let me clarify something here. The will of God is not the same as the will of man. In fact, the will of God is unlike human hope, because human hope suggests that something is desired, but there is no guarantee of its outcome. That is the human will. Something you desire with no guarantee of its outcome. Read John chapter 6. And you will see there is an outcome. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Nobody can go to Jesus. Nobody can become a Christian unless the Father draws him. He said previously, whoever the Father gives me, if the Father gives, they will they will come. Whoever the Father gives to Jesus, they will come. Not might come, not should come, or we hope they come. No, he says, whoever the Father gives, they will come. Therefore, they will believe. And then he says this, read John chapter 6. And whoever the Father gives me, I will raise up on the last day. Human will supposes it, it, it really it really hinges on hope, human hope, that if I do this, then this will happen, but I'm not sure if it will. Therefore, I've got to keep doing something that it might happen. But that's not God's will, folks. God's will does not work like that. Because God's will is determined. Remember how Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will won't be done on earth unless... No, he didn't say that. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will being done on earth? Of course it is, folks. God is doing his will on earth. How do we know? And how can we believe that? And how can we trust that he is doing it? We have the Bible. And we have the last book in the Bible called the book of Revelation. And God has already written history, past, present, and future. And he says right at the end of the book of Revelation, should anyone remove a word from this book, change it in any way, alter it in any way, so will their names be blotted out of the book of life. 
what it actually means is that they probably weren't saved anyway. Because they didn't believe it. Because if you believe it, you wouldn't rub it out. You wouldn't change it. You wouldn't alter it. Those God's will being done on earth, it is. Will it continue to be done on earth? It will. How do we know? The book of Revelation is proof. It's proof. Do you get that? It is signed, it is sealed, and it is delivered. Otherwise, you don't actually believe it. But it is signed, sealed, and delivered. Therefore, his will is going to be done. Whatever God's will, whatever God wills, it will be done. And we don't alter that. And we don't manipulate that because it's already written. Amen? And Jesus said, and whoever the Father gives me, they will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. The will of God, folks, is you can trust it. You can trust it with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And if I had time, I would go through that and detail it out for you. And I don't have the time to do that. I need you to know that God brings His will, the knowledge of His will to us. Do you think you have conviction in your heart when you are tempted? Why do you think you, when you, when you sin, you are convicted in your heart that it was wrong? The will of God is not for you to fall. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But, hang on, when you are tempted, you just said, I won't be tempted beyond what I can bear. Beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, you will be tempted. He will provide a way out for you. A way of escape. We proclaim Christ here because he is the only way of escape. What does it mean for us? It means we rely on him. It means we need him. It means we need him more than he needs us. That means our gospel is to be on him. That means our talks to be about him. Why? Not as a checklist. It's living intimate. Spend time with him and to talk to us through his word. And we talk to him through Christ. It's real, isn't it? Let's live like that. And let's see what happens as we live like that. Live like he is a real person. Actually, he is a real person. Let's live that way. And let's see how that changes us. Let's see how that changes the way we think, the way we talk, and what we do. Father God, we just want to thank you for your word this morning. Your word is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light to our We would be foolish to think that your word is not true. We know your word does not contradict itself. That you can't say one thing here and then contradict yourself in another place. Because that would mean that you're a messed up God. And you're not. But we know that your word makes much of you. Because we need you more than you actually need us. That you created us for your glory. That we would bring glory to you. Not that you would bring glory to us. But that we would bring it to you. And in bringing it to you, you would fill us with joy. We would be joyful. Because we would recognize that our greatest need is you. Oh Lord, we want to know your will. So I pray that you will help us, that you will confirm that to us day in and day out. 
confirm to us the knowledge of your word so that we would walk in a manner worthy, Lord, that we would walk in a way that would bring you glory, that would make much of you. And your greatest command is to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, mind and strength. And uh, Lord, how can we do that if we don't know you personally and that it's only a head knowledge? Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning, oh Lord, that you would just open hearts, that you would open minds, that Lord, you would reveal the truth to people this morning, that you would save some who are here who aren't saved, that Lord, they would see their greatest need is for you, that you are the way, the truth, the life, that no man comes to the Father except through you, Lord Jesus, because you died for them, for their sin, that they might be raised to life again. When they die physically, they would be raised in a glorious way. Oh, Lord, I pray for them. I pray for anyone here struggling in their faith, that, Lord, you would increase their faith. Oh, Lord, you, you live in us, you dwell in us, not to sit dormantly or wait upon us, because if that happened, uh, you would be waiting for a very long time. But, Lord, we know that you move according to your will, according to your purposes, working in all things for those who love you and those who are part of your family. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.